we went to the Van Gogh Museum uh, before Blaze Europe Forum, and that was one of the cooler things we saw in Amsterdam. We didn't have a long time there, and but it was fascinating to see the self-portraits. That was the the the, the little um, uh, highlight was the, a bunch of self-portraits by Van Gogh of himself, you know, with the ear, without the ear. <laughs> Both the ears, both still there. Yeah, you know, he he looked like a guy from Northern Europe, right? So uh, there's an early, there's actually a photograph of him as, I don't know, 18, 19 year old kid. And he's like clean shaven. He's got both ears. He looks like a person you'd run into on the street today. It was just fascinating to watch. Yeah, a lot of tourists come through Amsterdam, of course. Uh, A lot of UK youth that we noticed were running around having a good time and good for them. Uh, But yeah. A crazy week on the road. We spent the whole week over in Europe. We went to Amsterdam. We went to Riga, Latvia, and then we ended our our tour in Copenhagen for a night. So a whirlwind tour. And stay tuned because we have a lot to discuss about Blades Europe Forum. Welcome to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I am your host, Alan Hall, and I'm here with Joel Saxum. And we just got back from Blades Europe Forum 2023 in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. And we sat through all the sessions, at least the vast majority of them, so that you didn't have to. And we we wanted to to touch on some of the the highlights that we saw at the Blades Europe Forum, because there there was a lot of good information there and uh, a lot of good discussion points. And as uh, Joel and I discussed in between sessions and, and at dinner, uh, the United States and Europe are going in different directions. <laughs> and I, I, wrote, I wrote a LinkedIn post about it, which got a lot of traffic. So we should talk about that too, Joel, while we're at it. So, I mean, like Alan was saying, one of the things we notice here is, okay, so the audience at Blades USA, when you're there, if you're in the Blades world in the United States, you've probably been to Blades USA, or at least one of your colleagues has. And the reason being is it's a lot of operators, right? So there's performance engineers, there's you know performance analysts, there's blade engineers, there's mechanical engineers, there's all these asset managers, there's the people responsible for making sure that the blades are running on your wind farms are at Blades U Blades USA, right? Um, I think what was the last last year about two hundred people there, right, Alan, in, in Austin? Yeah, maybe a little more. Yeah, so to get a little bit of a, a different view on it, right? This event is, you would think, an, on the outside, a carbon copy. Haymarket puts on this. It's through Wind Power Monthly, Blades USA, Blades Europe. Same logos, same everything. How, however, the Blades Europe conference was very much more research based. So what we found there is, um, so, you know, some service providers. The drone companies were there. Clobotics was there. Skyspecs was there. Our friends at Arones were there. Uh, of course, the WeatherGuard Lightning Tap with our, our Strike Tape product, uh, a couple others along the same lines. Um, and then the other half of the audience was a lot of researchers. You know, there was the, 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 the couple of asset managers and from, you know, a few companies that we knew. But for the most part, you know, Fraunhofer Institute, TU Delft, uh, DTU. So there was a lot of uh, representation from the 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 universities in Europe that are doing all this newer research into what what can be done with turbines or with turbine blades. Right. And 
Just on the operator side, one of the key pieces I noticed early on, I think it was a discussion from Statcraft, which is based in Norway, is they, they were looking at uh, thermal imaging and the use of thermal imaging to detect cracks and the size of cracks on blades out in the water. And they provided some images. They've done some really early work on this. And it was surprising because the, and the and the reason they brought this up was it's it's actionable and I, I want to keep this key point here as we discuss what happened at Plate Europe actionable. It's something I could use today to make a decision about what I need to do tomorrow. And so when Stackcraft brought up the thermal imaging photos and there were some really interesting photos there. Uh, I wish they would publish some of that because it, it was amazing. What you can see on the outside on a normal drone image is relatively small compared to what is underneath the paint. And in the proper situations, thermal imaging can show you crack progression, the real size of the cracks. It's kind of looking beneath the surface. It's a little tricky to perform, but boy, if you can get it right, the, the data was just really useful straight away as to what the next steps were. And, and Joel, you you saw that presentation too. What did you think of the Statcraft uh, presentation? The idea behind thermal and blades is not new, right? I think ABJ Drones is trying to do this for a while. There's a couple other drone companies out there trying to make this happen. However, the just the nature of blades makes it difficult uh, to do. Usually, inspections of blades, you have to stop the blades. Okay, as soon as you stop the blades, motion stops. So motion creates heat. That's one of the problems. And the other, and other problems are. You know, that homogenous surface of a blade with a gel coat on it is is shiny. It's not matte. So shiny uh, reflects the IR waves. So you're you're automatically at a, you know, at a loss there when you're trying to get data. So then there was like, should we heat the blade and then see which parts of the blade, you know, um, basically cool off faster and or retain heat more? And that's an, that was a thought process. So there's a lot of different ways to think about this, but all of them boil down to the same concept. You know, if you're a blade technician you've you've been on a crack right so if you open up that crack sometimes it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and larger and larger and larger you can't see everything until you open it up and the reason is the reason that you may be able to see it with thermal is the idea of um basically friction creates heat so as that blade bends and moves so if you had a uh, say say this is your blade your your biax structure and your laminate underneath if that's moving in one spot all of that or like this all of those points will be basically the same temperature. But if you have a crack and it starts doing this, then you create friction at that point. And that point creates heat. And that heat dissipates not just on the crack, but it dissipates kind of broadly across the, the structure there. So you're able to see the thing in thermal imagery, but it's very difficult because it ha the conditions have to be just perfect. It can't be a sunny day. It can't be uh, a day with a lot of moisture in the air. There, there's a lot of um, a lot of trouble in in thermal imagery and i mean that's not that's not native to blades that's thermal imagery in general is very difficult to remote sense however um again like alan was saying these at, at blades europe a lot of like hey this is the things that we're trying to solve these are the problems that we're working on we are statcraft this is what we're working on we are um fraunhofer institute this is what we're working on we, this is uh you know i'm 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 chow chen from dtu this is what we're working on and some of them were, it was like, um, you know, getting together the old, the band, right? All these researchers kind of know each other. Uh, and then once they leave a university, they usually go to an operator and they stay in touch and they work together and, and these kind of things. 
So it was a lot of, uh, hey, we've been working on one of one of them that I listened to is we've been working on this project for a few years. This is our update. Um, but it's actionable, actionable research that's being applied into the wind industry. Yeah. And, you know, that reminds me of a, another project uh, just down those lines. Right. So uh, the Netherlands has funded a project called AirTub, A-I-R-T-U-B, right, which is. A, a drone-based system to essentially take a little vehicle onto a, a blade to do, of all things, ultrasonic inspection, NDT, right? So the, the presentation of that was like, wow, okay, so they're out there flying this drone, they're doing, they're showing sort of the basics and what they're learning as they're kind of going along this project, actionable, right? Because NDT on blades is something that everybody wants to do or needs to do, and on top of it, it's it was funded by the the Dutch, right? They were funding that was it's part of the sort of the aerospace research center for the Netherlands. So it's sort of a Dutch funded effort to go look at this. Really fascinating to watch because short term, in, in terms of things that would happen in America, this is relatively short term, uh, and results, published results. So as they're talking about those results on stage, I'm googling their site. And pulling off the reports for that air tub uh, uh, study, I'm like, wow, okay, this is this is really cool. Now I ca I can list on one hand the number of times that I've downloaded anything from an American university having to do with research actionable on wind turbines. It just doesn't happen. And I the whole week I'm just who whoever's presenting, I am trying to figure out if they presented before and what have they published and what does it mean to me. Really cool stuff. And I just thought, man, there is a, a big uh, difference between what's happening in Europe and what's happening in the United States, and particularly in offshore, like the offshore work and the, uh, the amount of effort there to think ahead. Remarkable. Remarkable. Yeah, take take for instance that AirTub project. So the AirTub project is not new, right? It's a it's a couple of years old. But when they came out with the AirTub project and the and the list of stakeholders for the AirTub project is massive. You have everything from like Eneco, who is a an offshore asset owner, to LM Wind Power and TU Delft and the actual <clears throat> the company that sponsors the whole thing called World Class Maintenance, which is actually not a company; it's an organization. Um, so you had you had I think the stakeholder list on this thing. There was like forty companies on it. They're all working together on this. So when they had initially announced this project, this project had some EU funding, which is great. Um, but it also had a lot of funding from all the stakeholders and they came together and said, Hey, we had, we know we have a problem to solve and we need solutions for it. Of course, offshore wind, very expensive for operations and maintenance. We know this. So they created a roadmap for this project that included a lot of things that a lot of companies are doing right now on their own. Right. But they wanted to make this a cohesive, uh, effort to get all of these things done with one solution. So we know that offshore or or wind turbine NDT is being done. We know that blade bug is working on it. We know that our friends at Arones are working on it. We know that, you know, force technology already kind of does it. Nobody does it in the, you know, the most efficient fashion because it's tough, right? You have to get sensors up tower and you have specialized people and all these things. We know this. But the AirTub project is like, hey, we're going to make a drone platform. That drone platform is going to scale itself. It needs to do inspection. It needs to do NDT. It needs to do repairs. It needs to do this. It needs to do that. So they have all these things lined out. And it is uh, transparent. The project's very transparent. Every every you know stage they get done with, they put a big report out. Hey, here's how you can use this. Here's how what we're doing. All the all the good things. Um, and they're up on stage talking about it. And uh, 
looking for feedback and looking for, um, you know, more ideas and more thought process. So uh, it's, it's, it's just a little bit different of an atmosphere. Yeah, it, it definitely was. The, some of the forums and the discussions offline, I thought were really fascinating. Uh, you know, we met, uh, <laughs> Arthwin was there. So I don't want to always give, you know, talk names here because I don't know, you know it's fair to everybody. But when talking to Arthwin, like, man, they're really working hard, those guys in Brazil. They're all, they come all the way out to, the, to Amsterdam to, to watch some of these presentations. And they act, uh, the, the representative there was really good at asking questions, very specific questions. Again, actionable stuff. So that, that was part of the great discussion that I saw was um, Arthwin coming in and saying, what about this? What about this? What about this? We have looked at these things already, and we know that these are problem areas, and how do you solve those? Uh, the, the one that really stands out the most, I think Arthwin uh, provided some information on or some guidance on, was the segmented blade concept, right? You're going you're gonna to make your blades in Germany. You're going to make them in little pieces. You're going to send these pieces in a Connex box on a ship to wherever it's going to go. Then you're going to take it and, and kind of assemble it in a, like an erector set kind of fashion. And everybody in the audience is like, hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 uh, yeah, like it, we, we, we've been through a couple of efforts on segmented blades, particularly uh, LMGE, and it hasn't worked out so well, but that's, you know, that's early, I think, still in this process. But I, I do, it's one of those uh, fascinating times where you're like throwing out a concept and just kind of getting the market feedback. That's what it felt like to me. Like, hey, this is a possible thing. We could make segmented blades in Germany and ship them all over the world, and they can assemble them on site. It does have some advantages. It certainly does. But then the feedback from the industry was like, well, uh, it's been kind of rough doing that, so we don't think this is real. You need to flesh it out a little bit more, which is a fair criticism, in my opinion, that you want to know that now rather than after, you know, $100 million spent on this technology, which may not be used. It's sort of the same thing with AirTub. They're kind of attacking the problem small, making sure they're getting actionable data out of it that people would use, and then expanding the program. Once they find that avenue, they're going to go right down it. And th that feedback loop, which is happening at Blades Europe, was, I, I think, a really important part of the piece of the industry, which gets omitted, at least on the engineering side. Yeah, to, to speak to that, one of the things they did at the conference, they made sure that there was time at the end of every presentation for Q&A. Right. This is Blades Europe, Blades USA, both of them. It's an intimate setting. There's not 10,000 people walking around a conference, right? There's 50, 100, 200 people in one room. And all of those people are the same, the same um, people that you see from one, one uh, panel or, you know, one speaker to the next to the next day. You have, din you have lunch with them, dinner with them, breakfast with them, all of the above. So they did make some time and, and you heard some really good questions from specific people in the audience, all, all over the audience. For almost all of these things, um, one of the things that I like uh, about they did it at Blades USA in the past, they did it at Blades Europe this time, is the panels, because panels to me really invites the feedback, right? So on some of these panels, uh, one of them they had about building inspection strategies uh, for proactive repairs and l blade life extension. So you got different voices up there, right? You had um, a VP of engineering from Mistras. Right. So you had some people in the CMS space, you had asset integrity managers for offshore, you had a structural engineer, and then you had um, a financial asset owner all sitting on stage talking about the different ways that they approach the same problems, because it's not doesn't not the same. Right. Like an asset in, asset engineer approaches it one way, a person in the field approaches it another way, a 
Someone in the, the ISP space approaches it one way, a financial owner does it a, a completely different way. So having all those people on stage for these panels was, uh, I think, I would like to see more of those um, and more encouraging, yeah, more encouraging the Q&A from, from the crowd uh, directed at some of these people because that's, that's the forum where you can share information. We're always talking, no matter what, what situation we're in, ah, the OEMs are hiding this and we can't get this information here and blah, 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 blah. But when you can sit up there and have a panel at one of these things with experts from all realms uh, of the supply chain sitting around talking, just when it gets to the point where it's almost like a BS session, which happens more in the U.S. than in Europe, it's a little bit more, more, uh, <laughs> a little more stringent over there. But when it gets to that point where you're just kind of like, hey, what about this? What about this guy sit here? And someone just kind of stands up in the crowd and goes, I think this. Those are the those are my favorite ones. Those are the best because I think it's where the uh, problems get raised and ideas are actually thrown out of it. And experience comes out, right? That, that we've tried this and this works or this doesn't work. And I, I do agree with you that those, those discussions are really key. You know, one of the... Uh, Going down that same thought process, we there was a discussion about FSAs, which I thought was fascinating, because uh, obviously there's a lot of FSA talk right now, and uh, you can watch Vestas at the moment is really leveraging themselves in GE and and uh, Siemens as well, is that they're all uh, pushing towards full service agreements because of the revenue stream and trying to encompass more and more activity on the repair side. The operators were of the opposite opinion about FSAs, which were, after a couple of years, you don't need them. After, once the warranties are over, you just don't need them. And there was a variety of feedback as to why, but it mostly had to do with just the level of service that they got once uh, the blades had been around for a couple of years and the turbines had been around a couple of years. And it was shocking to hear the sort of the, the open opinion about that, like, well... Uh, one of the questions was raised, should we buy a, a 20 year or 25 year FSA? And pretty much everybody around me was like, no, that's crazy. <laughs> it's not worth it. You can, you can uh, do a lot more with uh, your own process, internal processes. If you have it laid out and you have it in the staff to manage it, obviously a lot of operators in Europe have that where the FSA doesn't make any sense. Uh, and it was really fascinating to watch that kind of murmur <laughs> In the crowd, like, ooh, we're talking about FSAs. Oh, there's a difference of opinion. There's, there's, there's some OEMs listening into this, but we're just going to tell them what we think, which is, we don't need you. Uh, very odd. But yeah, I think that explains a lot where the industry is. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that, you know, at length on the podcast before, even with like Phil Tataro over at Intel Store, their data actually shows that some of the uh, better performing wind farms are the ones that have, you know, leaned off of FSAs and have gone to self either self-management or ISP management. And, uh, you know, one of the kind of the things I heard in, in a, I'll, I'll say in an alleyway in Amsterdam was that one of the large, one of the largest operators in Australia recently has made a strategic move to get away from FSAs. Now, if you know anything about the Australian market, they've almost exclusively been uh, operations through F full service agreement with the OEMs. And I think that their people are starting to finally kind of get fed up with them. Because at the end of the day, a lot of times, if you have an FSA with an OEM, you're ending up with a subcontractor to an ISP on your wind farm anyways. <laughs> so, so why, why do that? You know, and, and it's, it, you know, it makes sense in certain areas where, you know, you may not have an engineering or, or prowess. You know, if you're a financial asset owner, you're not an engineering company. You're not an asset management company. So um, people have, tend to sign those FSAs. Well, it, it might be better off for you to 
look to the independent market instead of the OEM for an FSA, you know? So there's there's quite a few options out there. But the yeah, like Alan said, the, the majority of the whispers we heard there are the same things that are being mirrored, mirrored being said in the States, that people are starting to shy away from FSAs. Yeah, which makes you a little bit nervous for the OEM status or health status there, right? Because they're relying upon those FSAs to make up for the, the lower cost they have to sell their turbines for. Uh, yeah, the industry may not be supportive of that of that future. You know, and one other thing I want to talk about on the technical side, because I, I, the whole time I'm sitting there thinking about the amount of data that is being generated from these turbines. And uh, remember, Sensori gave a, a really good presentation about the different things that they can do by, by monitoring and, and learning and, and kind of using some machine learning algorithms to, to get smart about what's happening in the turbine. Thinking, man, that's a lot of data. Yeah, that's a lot of data. I think they, they touched on the amount of data from their system. Like, ooh, that's a lot. And then watching Nerth Labs and um, Sky Specs and a couple others, like even the thermal imaging, like, ooh, there's a lot of data that's coming off these turbines. Uh, and how do you manage that? Especially as you get into more remote locations. If you get further offshore, how are you going to manage all that data? And the obvious answer was Starlink, right? SpaceX system, right? So I started asking them, like, are, are you using the SpaceX system to, to upload and download data? Like, no, no. And I thought that was just really weird. Like, why would you not, in the days when you need to have a lot of data transfer at remote locations, why is Starlink not at the sort of top of priorities? And maybe it is, they just can't say it, but boy, oh boy, uh, it, it seems like an obvious answer to a very complex problem. I have a Starlink setup, right? It's in a backpack. So I have a backpack that I can literally, if I'm in my pickup, I can plug it into my truck anywhere I am. And I have 200 megabytes down and 50 megabytes up. I'm like, there's, there's no, that, that's as good as a wired connection almost anywhere on earth. So yeah, the amount of data there. And then the other side of that is the amount of data up and managed from the field. But the, as we get further and further down the line of creating all this data, I, know, I do know that there's people that have gotten away from AI in general. Um, just because of the kind of the problems it can bring. However, we're almost going to have to start getting back into some AI, at least for the basic insights and the basic management of data, because when it becomes to be so much, operators will tell us all the time, like, man, we get stuck in a data like quagmire. We get so much that we can't even make the insights out of it that we should. And at the end of the day, they just want to be told what to do, right? That an operator says, don't give me 35 gigabytes of inspection data for one turbine. Give, give me the things I need to fix and if I need to fix them now or next year. That's what I want to know. I don't want to have to sort through all this stuff. So uh, I think that you'll start to see, uh, I mean, and you're seeing this in every industry, no matter what, but uh, AI is a tool. And to be honest with you, I don't really care if that's your, don't use it. <laughs> this is me. Don't use it as marketing. Just use it and make it happen in the background. Tell me that you're going to give me the best insights that you can from the data that's being being collected, whether it's from a CMS or from a drone inspection or from SCADA. I don't care. Just give me the answers um, instead of telling me all the things that you can do. Yeah, and I, I do think that is, uh, you could feel it, right? Uh, you saw two different approaches to data control and data interpretation. You saw AI used a lot by the professors. You saw machine learning used by the people in the industry. And I thought that was a really unique difference, right? They understand if you're actually doing it, it's just algorithms, right? We're applying this algorithm to this data set to 
filter it. That's what it is. It's filtering. It's not artificial intelligence, but in the uh, theoretical world of the professors, it's artificial intelligence. That's the way they do these things. Uh, so we're at this this real we're at this weird breakpoint where it's still coding and it's still trying to filtering and it's learning, right? But we are starting to I think things I've seen are making the transition over. Like it, the the computers and the systems are a lot smarter. They're able to make some of the determinations by themselves. They are iterating into smarter al- quote unquote algorithms, and I think that's really helpful for the industry because they're right. If we're all looking for blade damage, then we need to be smart about how we look for blade damage. Yeah, I mean, you'll. I think you'll start to see some more uses, and I'm going to go to. I'm going to give you another one. We went AI, ML. You're going to start to see more uses for machine vision in the wind industry, and that can be targeted. So when we start getting NDT up there, you don't want to have to go do an NDT report or study or inspection on your entire blade. You want to actively use while on site, while local. You want to use some machine vision to be able to pick out the areas that you actually need to inspect and then and then move on with it, right? So that's going to be the next iteration. Once you don't have a technician up there to do NDT, it'll be machine vision based. And then as, of course, as we start seeing more and more of these re- repair robots at the show in Blades USA or at Blades Europe, sorry, we saw the Sparrow uh, robot from Clobotics, the leading edge repair. Same concept as the Vestas robot where they have the blade horizontal at 90 degrees to gravity. And they set the the LEP robot on there, right? So we're seeing some more advances in LEP robots. Our friends Arones over there in Latvia, they're starting to do more and more things with their robots uh, that's outside of just LEP repair. And that's going to be all or mostly all reliant on machine vision um, to, to be able to make those decisions in real time that are proper, correct. And once you get robots doing certain things... Um, AI, machine vision, machine learning, like it's all tools of the future, but they're going to be, they're used now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I do want to touch upon the venue and uh, kind of how that went. Now, it was in Amsterdam, which is sort of a central point for a lot of people, right? Particularly in Europe, not so much in the United States. Uh, but uh, Amsterdam itself, nice city, obviously sort of a modern European city. But it has a couple, some rough edges. You, you got to admit, it has a little bit of rough edges around it still. And there, there's a lot of uh, uh, rebuilding. Like we were in a, in a facility that was an old Lutheran church, probably even built in the 1600s, which was really cool. <laughs> Parts of it really cool. Besides the fact that the heat didn't work. Which is what happens when a, you, know, you have a 400, 500-year-old church. It's just going to be drafty. Uh, but I, I think the, the, the difference between... Uh, Blade Europe and Blade USA is just in the, the sort of the format, the layout, who's there, and the the vibe that's generated there. I'm an engineer. You can't hit me with enough data. I, I will always be able to take more data in if you're willing to give it to me. And it, it, where Blade USA tends to be a little more salesy. Blade Europe is definitely more educational for sure. And, and if, if that's your if that's your thing, you want to see some of the data. That's the place to go. So. Uh, you know, I, I pulled out a lot out of Blade Europe. Uh, I wish I could pull out more. I wish it was they had more people attending it because I think that some of the discussions have been a little more livelier. I do appreciate it. You know, the Clobotics demonstrations were good. There's a lot of good stuff that happened. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to see some, like you said, the if you got some more financial asset owners and some more actual asset operators in the room, I think that tying the tying the research projects back to the people that will actually be using them in the EU 
and the EU and, and around, that would be uh, advantageous for the whole platform. Um, and then that also gives that feedback, right? Because I think there is some things like we talked about the segmented blade idea that Fraunhofer in Germany was working on. In my mind, and and if I'm be honest, in 100% of the minds that I spoke to about it while at the show, they're like, why are they working on this project? It's nobody's going to use it, right? We're We're looking at one segmented blade that's available in the market right now that is failing regularly uh and they're t- and that's a two-piece blade and this is going to be a t- 12-piece blade and so that was kind of like man they need a little bit of a reality check on this project it'd be nice to get some some of the people that might actually buy the the technology in the room to say we're not buying that stuff or maybe i'm com- and completely wrong and they said yeah go ahead but um, yeah, more. I would like to see more asset owners uh, involved in the in the asset owners managers uh, involved in the conversations over there. You know, the one I was just thinking about this, Joel, was one of the things that was not a constant focus was leading edge protection. Weirdly, it, there was discussion about it, but it wasn't like everybody has leading edge protection problems. Here's here's all the research that's going on. That has slowed down a little bit. I assume that's because of some products. Yeah, and I think everybody knows that, right? That's that would be we we beat that dead horse for a while, right? So it's the same thing. Like when, when we were at uh, was it Blades USA two years ago or something? I remember like all of the presentations were all drone companies. It's like we've got it. Drone inspections are what we do, and there's some data to be had, and everybody has a platform, and everybody has a way of looking at data damages, and everybody has their their system. We get that now. Um, which one is best? Now that's subjective, uh, depending on your needs. And I think that I think that the next one that we could see is a big focus on CMS and digital twins. Um, looking from up, yeah, <laughs> looking from other industries uh, that have the same thing, like oil and gas. Digital twin is a huge thing, and digital twin. Whether you say you're saying IoT, Internet of Things, CMS, like that's all the same. It's 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 instrumentation in the field that brings back to a dashboard. They're all the same. That'll be the next focus. I disagree because the, the digital trend makes me insane because I think it's it, it's such a complicated problem and we're, the industry and the turbines are changing so fast that even if you were to instrument several of them, I don't think it's going to capture all the variability that is going on inside of things like blades or gearboxes uh, where the twin is going to be that valuable to you. See what, and I'll tell you why I disagree with you, Alan, and why I disagree is this, the fact that we've had such growth in makes and models and blade types and gearbox types and all these different things in the last 10 years, that when we get to the stage outside of the US, of course, because of PTC funds and repowering outside of the US, when we get to the stage, which we're coming to shortly of end of life extension, you ha- almost will have to instrument these things to understand what's going on, because there'll be places where... Hey, this was design life 20 years. When you're coming up on year 16, 17, you're probably going to want to know if you've got to decommission that thing at 20 or if you can push it to 25. That will be all digital twin instrumentation process. Now, like I said, in the US, not as big of a thing, right? Because PTC is there and we're just going to pop the gearbox off, put a new one on and rebuild the blade or put new blades on anyways. So we're repowering, not a big deal. But the rest of the world doesn't do that yet or won't do that, or their policies don't support it. So the rest of the world has, and if you get the same thing, all of these Siemens 3.2s up to the even the 6 and 8 megawatt offshore wind turbines that were put in 10 years ago, 
they're getting to the stage now where more monitoring, um, you know, lifetime extension. And I think that's where we're going to start to see more of this CMS stuff where we've seen a lot of CMS companies pop up in the last few years. I think that it's going to become uh, more and more to the forefront uh, as we, as the fleet, as the global fleet ages. I think you're right. The digital twin in the, in the States is dead. Unless, unless some, some state or some agency requires it for something, it's not going to, they're just not going to invest in it. So we, we, we left uh, Amsterdam and then took a quick uh, flight over to Riga, Latvia to meet with Arons. And this is part of our tour of Europe <laughs> for that week. And we brought horrible weather everywhere we went. It was, it, we just, we fly into Riga. It is a complete snowstorm, practically white out. <laughs> we get in a taxi. It is like skating to the airport. <laughs> it was a, a little crazy. It's like a road rally on ice. Uh, but the, <laughs> yeah, that was insane. So we, we did go visit Arons. And uh, Danis and Greta took us through the factory, and, and it, it, it is a factory. And we're going to have a separate episode just devoted to it to give you all the insights. And there's a lot of cool video that went along with that. But holy smokes, this is way beyond a startup. They have uh, a lot of people on staff that are creating some really cool robots and some they have some new tech and their capabilities are expanded and it was just eye-opening what they have going there because unless you visited it you would not realize they have grown to that stature yeah i mean i've been following arones for a few years now since you're really coming into the wind industry watching them this hey we're you know we we clean towers and then it was we clean we do lps testing we do this we do that all of a sudden like their their you know their offerings grew and grew and grew and we watched them get a you know a big a big investment here not too long ago about a, you know six nine months ago, and we got the opportunity. Of course, they're friends of the podcast. We've had them on. We've talked to them a few times. We got the opportunity to go visit their office. And to be honest with you, even while knowing them, I was thinking, ah, fifty people, you know, a, a warehouse in Latvia, and you know, some some engineers in the corner, or whatever. We got there, and it was like a five story building, four floors. This floor is finance, and this floor is analytics, and this floor is engineering, and, and this floor is operations. And then, the, oh, we got to go to the building next door to check out manufacturing. There was like R&D room, test room, manufacturing lab, CNC. Like, I mean, there's they have two, 250-plus employees. They're working all over the world. They're mobilizing kit everywhere. They have, I mean, they're big enough right now where you, you can understand this if you've been in any kind of industry. They're big enough right now where they have a, a complete supply chain department. <laughs> right that's 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 crazy um so and and they're and they're have their setup there ready to expand they're thinking that in the next six months they'll take over another floor of the office building the last you know one of the last floors and then in the next year expand into the next facility over which is you know just a a 10 meter walk out the back side of their warehouse is another one that's a carbon copy that they can expand into uh so very very um eye-opening like you said alan like we walked in and oh man we took this tour and it was it was crazy uh so when we did a we did a good interview with uh greta and and danis over there as well so uh we'll, we'll post that here not too long but uh take a listen to that one to kind of see where they're at and what they've got going on and if you have any questions be sure to reach out to them yeah and we flew through copenhagen on the way home we well we avoided uh the big snowstorm in germany joel didn't on the way back because we we brought snow 
all over Europe. They should thank us for that early Christmas snow. <laughs> but we did stop in Copenhagen on the way back uh, and did the Christmas market thing for an evening. And obviously, Copenhagen in Christmas time is quite beautiful. And I, I will say the same thing about Riga. Uh, Danis and Greta took us on a little bit of a tour of Riga. It's a modern city on parts of it. It has older historic parts, but all of it is tremendously beautiful. It's like, holy moly, you would not believe the skyline and the sights and the, the river and the bridges and the restaurants and the, like, whoa. Everybody we ran into there was nice, helpful. Um, you know, you get a little bit of the, the cold-faced Eastern European look, but at the end of that, they crack a smile and and I tell you what, you can get uh, some fantastic food for good prices. <laughs> oh my gosh, we had the best meal. That was amazing uh, in Riga, and I would I wouldn't have guessed it. Uh, I, I I just didn't expect it to be that modern. I kept saying to everybody, "That's a modern building." Like, was that built last year? Like, no, we just take care of our things. <laughs> but you know, having come out of the United States, you're like, oh, you, you, it's a little wear and tear is pretty obvious in a lot of cities, but not in Riga right now. Man, there's a lot of activity going on there, and, and it seems like it's bustling. It's one of those, uh, you know, vibrant European cities that has a lot going for it at the moment. So it's it's cool to see Arones there and to see how they're going to grow. Wow. Yeah, if you get an opportunity from uh, the team over there, an invite to come over, highly recommend to do it. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie, and we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Cool.